Hello Pod Pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host Nicole Davis and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. My guest this week is Anna Godas, the CEO of documentary distribution company Dogwoof, who have released films such as The Alpinist, The Act of Killing, Blackfish, Camera Person, Citizen Four, Free Solo, Honeyland, Minding the Gap, OJ Made in America, RBG, and many, many more. Quite simply, if Dogworf are putting a doc into cinemas, you're probably in for a treat. Their latest film is Becoming Cousteau, directed by Liz Garbus, which was released this Friday and provides an inside look at the life of Jacques-Yves Cousteau and the experiences that made him the man who inspired generations to protect the earth. Anna has steered the company from a small UK indie film distributor to a leading global brand in the field of documentary and was directly responsible for the creation of Dogworth's international sales arm, as well as the creation of Dogworth's fund T-Dog Productions. Anna is now focusing on growing Dogworth's production and development side, focusing on feature docs, doc series, remake rights, podcast and shorter content. Her mission is to create a fully integrated True Stories mini-studio. We talk about the origin story of Dogworth, as well as how her role has evolved over the years and since becoming a mother. We discuss how she strives to create an open, transparent and healthy working culture, how the documentary landscape is changing and why, and why you can't really plan for the future. It was a joy to speak to Anna, and I hope you enjoy this insight into one of the most prolific distributors out there. This is episode 94 of Best Girl Grip. I mean, where I always usually like to start is just in the realm of university, because I think that is where most of us, if we're lucky enough to go, get our first taste of what we want to do in real life. Um, So I'm wondering if you did go to university and if so, what you studied there. Yeah, I actually went to East London University in Beckton or near Beckton. And I studied media studies with French. And then after that, I went to Royal Holloway in University of London and studied a master's in feature film screenwriting. And after that, I went to Barcelona, where I'm from, and I studied a master's in production. And then once I had already started at Dogwolf, I did an MBA in CAS Business School. Okay, you were you had that interest already. And I'm wondering, you know, did you have a specific sense of like the career that you wanted or you just knew that you liked screenwriting and then it kind of built from there? I thought I wanted to be a screenwriter and I'm sure I still want to be a screenwriter. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. I didn't have a specific idea in mind other than I, I wanted, I liked stories. I like film as a means to tell stories and I really like a good story. So, and I'm fascinated by people and characters. So I thought screenwriting could be a great career at the time. And so when did that transform into maybe the more production side of like film and and the business side of film? When did you sort of put the idea of being a screenwriter to bed slightly? Yeah, well, it was very accidental, to be honest. As I was doing the uh, feature film screenwriting uh, masters, I went to Cannes Film Festival because I thought that's where people went. There I met a friend who introduced me eventually the year after to Andy Whittaker. And at the time he was setting up, he wanted to set up a company. He wasn't sure if it would be production or distribution. And quite frankly, I 
didn't know what distribution meant, but I did know I wanted to work in the industry and I had been doing really small jobs as a script doctor, et cetera, et cetera. So we were introduced and he said, oh, I hear you work in film, which it was kind of true, but not really. <laughs> um, I was a freelancer doing my very best. And he said, I'm thinking of maybe setting up a distribution company. And we just started talking. We started going to meetings in Cannes. And that was the beginning of Dogwolf. And it was completely accidental. I mean, that's an insane kind of inception story. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those first conversations. Like, what was the ambition behind this company? Like, you say you don't you didn't really know what distribution was. Like, what did you think you were getting yourself into? I don't think Andy and I knew what we were getting ourselves into um, because I think his idea was at the time, from what I recall, he wasn't sure if he wanted to set up a production company or a distribution company. But then there was this conversation where someone told him maybe distribution was a better idea. So I remember we were in Cannes and he was like, maybe we should do distribution. And I'm like, yeah. It's like, oh, I have this meeting with someone to maybe buy a film. I'm like, yeah, let's go. And so I know it's difficult to believe, but we didn't really think of anything or what it took to set up a distribution company. And, you know, we found ourselves with uh, eventually in 2005, having bought our first film and having to sort of create a campaign from the scratch. And that was that was really, really, really hard because we found out that meeting cinemas is, wasn't that easy. You know, they were the, the gatekeepers. And for whatever reason, I guess like anyone who sets up a business, you think, you know, it's going to be easy or it wasn't easy because we realized, you know, I remember loads of cinema programmers. They wouldn't even see us. You know, it's like, who are these new kids on the block? Like, who mm. are these people? And uh, it was a very difficult sort of realization that we had a lot of work to do. And the first release was a massive learning curve. And what was your specific role in the company at the time? Like, what is it that you gravitated towards or felt that you were really good at? Well, at the time, as I said, you know, it, we, Andy and I just started setting up everything together because, you know, we had no structures in place. We were in our living room. We started in 2004 and it wasn't until 2005 when we bought our first film. And, you know, we were involved in everything at the same time, setting up all the structures, getting to know poster designers, trailer designers, this and that, cinemas, uh, DVD retailers, this but I felt I was naturally better at anything to do with marketing and understanding audiences and messages and also the visual side of things. I felt quite comfortable in that, in those elements. I really liked marketing and still to the, to this day, I love, you know, how to convey certain messages to certain audiences. And I felt very, very good, but you know, uh, I did everything from uh, distributing posters myself to cinemas, to carrying at the time, 35 millimeter prints uh, here and there. So it was a steep learning curve where we did everything ourselves from the very beginning until we had, you know, some structures which didn't come after, you know, good two, three years later. And when you would say you're putting together like campaigns from scratch without any kind of experience in that, like what were you looking at to get ideas from? You know, were you looking at how other people were doing it? Were you sort of reinventing the way people do campaigns just because you were going off instinct? What was that like? 
we we did some research, I guess, uh, and looked at other people and other distributors that we admired at the time, and and you know, so how they were doing it. What we would do also is to you know try and work with people that we knew you know, established distributors were using, like, again, poster designers or trailer agencies, etc., publicists. And, you know, we were going a little by instinct and we made a lot of mistakes, but also at the same time, we tried to work with the agencies and people that were already working for other distributors and were much more familiar than us mm -hmm. in terms of distribution and marketing. Did you find that you liked working in distribution? Did that feel like a good fit? I like conveying messages. I like targeting audiences. I like to the creative thinking behind coming up with a campaign as to, you know, again, how to target certain audiences. I didn't really think whether it was a suitable thing for me. It just felt good. It felt like, you know, many of my skills were suited for, you know, distribution. Coming back to kind of the moment where you sort of said yes and you took that leap of faith to creating the company, I'm wondering if that's like something that's always been innate, you know, like your ability to take risks or say yes, you know, did that feel like a scary leap or it was just something that you were like, well, let's let's give it a shot and if it fails, it fails. <laughs> Again, there was no decision moment. It was just like, honestly, at the time I wasn't doing much. I was doing, a, you know, some freelance work. I was finishing off my master's, my production master's in Barcelona. I wasn't doing much at all. So anything was better than that. And I thought Andy, you know, was he was much more experienced than me in terms of financing and stuff, not in film, but, you know, he came from e-commerce and stuff. So he was a more senior person than me. And I felt like a little bit like I had a mentor there. So for me, it wasn't it was a totally no-brainer. No it was a no-brainer. I mean, an opportunity to do something and it doesn't really matter that something, which is... And, and I guess, is that innate? I don't know. I think it's more of a personality thing, which is that I feel people often fall into the trap of planning the future, but you've never been there before. How can you plan something you don't know? I think planning the future or, or figuring out what you want to do or what you feel like doing in the future is, is, is okay. But I think there has to be a certain level of flexibility to allow ourselves to take on opportunities, even if they don't feel like the ones we planned. In fact, you know, experience, my personal experience shows that, thank God I was like that because, you know, imagine I'm like, N -uh -uh, mm -mm. I just, I want to be a screenwriter. So it's either that or nothing. Well, I would still be probably being a freelancer, trying to, you know, write a script that someone will read at some point. Maybe <laughs> not. But, you know, not being very strict about planning the future allowed me to take an opportunity that, you know, has proven to be a very valuable one. And it sounds kind of like a similar strategy that Dogworth took and that, you know, you had planned to be a certain kind of distributor and then you pivoted to documentary, which is obviously like the model that we now know Dogworth for. I'm wondering how that came about, you know, at what stage did you decide to distribute purely documentary films? Exactly. You picked it up quite quickly. It's, it really is a reflection of my personality and 
to an extent to Andy's personality, which is, you know, we started as distributors, obviously independent because we couldn't afford studio films and we're not a studio. And we started buying films, you know, comedies, horror films, you know, you name it, romantic stories, uh, until we learned the hard way that <laughs> it's not enough that you like a film. It's the audience that need to like the film. That's a good lesson for any filmmakers. The fact that you like your own film doesn't mean anyone else will like it mm-hmm. or that it, it will appeal to anyone else. So I think it was around 2007 or eight, roughly 2007 or eight, that this documentary called Black Gold came along with Francis Brothers. The documentary was about fair trade coffee at a time where fair trade was a new thing and so on. And Nick and Mark, Francis, were so clever and so switched on in terms of social media and, you know, sponsors and this and that and outreach. And, you know, so we took this on, we worked with them and it worked so well on many levels, you know, financially, but also, you know, the impact it had on Starbucks. So I figured that maybe that's something we should sort of repeat or get more into. And that's what we did. So eventually, and again, in a very organic way, it so happened that we realized that we were actually creating, developing a brand that was known for being really good at those documentaries. And there was a point that it was not like a eureka moment, but at some point, I guess we made a conscious decision to only go for documentaries and to market ourselves as such Mm -hmm. and be the big fish in the small pond rather than the small fish in the big pond that everyone was trying to be. And that that must have probably been around 2009 or 10. I I don't know, I'm roughly Mm -hmm. speaking, where we decided to do 100% documentaries and Mm. it it proved the right strategy. Was that a bit of a trailblazing move at the time? You know, were people only doing kind of broad releases and that was, you know, rare to be that niche? Yes, it was a trailblazing move for sure. And, you know, it just worked out. But we did a lot of like these moves, if you like, because... I remember we were the first ones to digitally release a film in cinemas at the time mm-hmm. where, you know, digital was like, what? What is that? You know, bring back the 35 millimeters. <laughs> you know, we had many of those sort of initiatives and some of them succeeded and some of them, we were too early. Like I recall a simultaneous day release uh, across different platforms. I think we were slated. Like, I think we were really it didn't really work out that well. And mm. the industry didn't, especially cinemas, didn't look at it with good eyes. And, um, but yeah, I'm glad we we tried new things. <laughs> I'm really interested in that kind of culture of risk-taking because it's potentially easier to do when you're small and nimble and, you know, there's two, three, four of you and maybe it matters less, there's less overheads. But when you grow to become a bigger team and there's more people that are counting on their livelihoods, you know, you you employ more people, how do you maintain that kind of attitude to taking risks when when you're bigger? That's a good question. I think, first of all, I never looked at it as a as risk taking because, you know, the, the risk we were taking was not that huge. You know, we had seed capital and then we did our best. And at some point when things were not working out so well and we were in financial difficulty, Andy went back to consulting on e-commerce and I stayed at Dogwolf. And, you know, he brought in that money 
to sort of patch all the holes we had. So I never saw it as a risk-taking enterprise until I became a mom. Mm. And then suddenly, I think my perspective changed in things, uh, changed some things. At the time, it was 2008, and I felt like becoming a mom made me a little bit more uh, risk-averse, if you like. Uh, it's the first time that I really thought we need to structure a little bit more the company. We need to be a little bit more conscious of our decisions. We need a more clear vision and so on, which was also the same time that I started studying an executive MBA. Mm -hmm. which gave me a good framework to, and, you know, and gave me certain tools that I could apply. So it, it was all happening at the same time. And it was quite positive in that we structured the company a little bit more, gave it a, a much better structure and became a more serious business, which was not a risk-taking business or as much as it used to be before. I'd love to probe that decision to go back to school and, and get an MBA in business. You know, what motivated that? Did you just feel like there were certain skills that you were lacking and that you needed to kind of catch up in or yeah, what was behind that decision? The decision is that there was a grant offered for film students that mm -hmm. wanted to get into, uh, into MBAs. And I had a lot of possibilities to get it. And because I was a woman, you know, in a sort of managerial role in, in the industry, I wasn't even from the UK and I got it. It was, again, an opportunity. Did I want to study business? No. <laughs> Did I ever plan to study business? No. Did I take the opportunity when something came up for film students? Yes. Why not? And it worked out. I learned loads. I got loads of tools, great classmates. You know, it was an executive MBA. So everyone was like above 30 with great careers, you know, amazing network. And also I, I became even more confident because I realized I knew a lot more than I thought I knew, you know, and, and it kind of validated my instincts as an entrepreneur. Mm. And I, I loved it. And even if it was just for that, it was worth doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you, you raised that, that you became a mother and that kind of changed your attitude towards perhaps the business. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how your role has evolved since, you know, founding the company and, and now becoming CEO. You know, what are your responsibilities now? What is it you're looking after? Well, I've been CEO for a lot, a long time, I think since 2010. I think, you know, before that, there was no real roles defined. So I guess what I see as my responsibility is growing the business primarily and looking after the staff. I think, you know, right now our area of growth is production. So that's where my focus is. A few years back, the area of growth was financing and before that was sales, international sales, and before that was distribution and so on. So it's all been, you know, very organic. I instinctively go and focus on sort of the areas of the business that have more potential for growth. And that's what I guess my fundamental role is. It's true that as you sort of as the company grows and we're like 20 people now instead of two, you have certain responsibilities. And one of the things that I do and I should do more of is looking after people. I think it's a, an important role I have uh, to set the culture, to to create a culture and, and dictate a healthy culture that I want to achieve. And it's not easy. It, 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 you know, it takes up a lot of my time and it should take a lot more if, you know, if I want to achieve my vision of a culture that is, you know, open, transparent, you know, open information, communication, give and take. 
mm-hmm. not just take. Treating people very fairly, that's what I strive for. Mm-hmm. Can we dig into that a little bit? How do you go about manifesting that kind of culture in the workplace of being open and transparent? What is it you're doing in order to create that? Well, it's a good question. The first thing is that I'm open myself. So I'm a bit of an open book. I don't really, we have an open plan office. Mm -hmm. I sit with everyone and I don't understand or make any kind of distinctions in terms of hierarchy and what type of information is shared. Most of information in the company is shared. Things like acquisitions, etc. We have uh, weekly meetings where everyone is welcome. So, you know, there's often a lot of people in the acquisitions meetings and it's up to people how much they want to get involved, what screeners they want to watch and feedback and so on. And overall, I just try to encourage an open culture where people are uh, communicating constantly. I just think it's, you know, it's crucial for any companies. I feel people should feel invested and I don't like to think that people are being left in the dark or that they feel they're being left in the dark in any way. I don't see the benefit of it for them or for for the company. And coming back to the priority on production at the moment, I'm wondering if you could perhaps give a little bit of context in terms of kind of the wider distribution landscape. Like why is that something that is so important at the moment? Why is that something that Dogworth are focusing on? Well, I mean, the the market has been obviously changing dramatically in the last, the past 10 years and since COVID even more so. Platforms and global buyers are, you know, going straight to producers, uh, producing themselves through other producers. You need to be in the production game if you want to become relevant. uh, Sorry, if you want to stay relevant, keep being relevant. So for us, it was not only this, but it was a a completely natural evolution, if you like, of, you know, the the natural development of the company where, you know, we start this uh, marketing to the consumer, then we start selling internationally, then we start financing. And then from financing, it just makes so much sense that it evolves into into production. We have the skills to to produce and to understand what the market really wants. And we have the, the skills and the brand to guarantee certain quality that we need to and we want to maintain. And it's just a great opportunity to be there and, and produce. And we've been doing it now for, for years. It's just that now we're really more aggressively going for it. And I think sales makes sense only as part of an integrated structure that produces, you know, also content. That is not to say that we only sell content we produce at all. You know, we sell content we love, whether it's produced by us or not. We need to ensure we produce to, you know, to have that output that we need. But also because we we really want to produce. We, we know what we're doing. We love documentaries, documentary series. And, you know, often there's, we see many opportunities passing by that if we had been producers, we would have, you know, now been enjoying certain successes. So there is absolutely no reason to not do that. We touched on taking care of your staff and and taking care of your company, but I'd also love to know about your relationship with filmmakers and how you take care of them, because obviously that that's a priority to Dogworth. So what does it mean to you to sort of work with filmmakers? How do you foster kind of positive, meaningful relationships with them? I'd say I'm not the key person to foster. I mean, I of course, I have great relationships with 
quite a few filmmakers, but I'd say the people who really foster those relationships are the people that are in acquisitions and production and sales. So for example, when we're selling a specific project, our sales team are the ones that have and foster those relationships, looking after the filmmakers pretty much in every possible aspect. And I really believe in, you know, being again, open, you know, and communicative and always, always have that open line of communication with them. I think where things go wrong is when you stop communicating for some reason. I think our acquisitions team and our sales team are the ones that really foster those relationships and, and really genuinely care for the filmmakers and what they've produced. So I think filmmakers generally feel they're treated fairly, honestly, and that we love their their films. And I'm, I'm guessing that must feel really good. So in that case, then I'm interested because obviously that you're then in a way parceling over a lot of responsibility to the people that you hire. You know, they're representing the dog with brand. They're in charge of the filmmaker relationships. How do you go about hiring good people? You know, what do you look for in a person when you're hiring them? I guess we look for people who understand and are a culture fit. Sometimes a company like Dogwood really sounds great from the outside because it's actually great. But, you know, if you've been in a corporate environment for 15 years, it's very difficult to really understand what an, a truly independent culture is about. I guess... We look for people that really want to work at Dogwood, that are honest and that get what we're trying to do and that they want to evolve within the company. I think that's very important. It's a company that is growing all the time and there's so many opportunities and that's and people that love documentaries and storytelling in general. It's obviously a very hectic role. A lot of roles in the film industry seem to be incredibly demanding, especially distribution where you're part of the film festival circuit and you're away a lot of the time. How do you yeah. prioritise all the different things that you have to do, as well as being a mother, as well as, you know, having a life, basically? Yeah, I think my priority are my children. So that's quite an easy decision. Everything else comes after them. And if the company has to wait, it has to wait. So maybe the company could have grown faster if I fully devoted myself to it, but instead it grows not as fast and that's okay too. So that's my approach. And I like that to be the approach of my staff too. It is hectic and I often, and I'm actually a single mom, by the way, so it is hectic and I often, I'm sitting with my children and I have a Zoom, but they're very much involved in everything. Um, they're very much part of it. So we are we are together a lot. You know, I take them to school and collect them from school every day. And so it's true that the evenings I'm often busy with two or three Zooms, but that's part of, you know, at least we're together and that's part of what I do. And they have a great role model, but I I respect the choice of prioritizing work over children, but in my case, it's the other way around and everything else come after that. Mm. And I have to fit in everything else. And if things have to wait, then they, they just wait and that's okay too. I'd also love to interrogate what the word growth means to you, because obviously we've spoken about the fact that you're constantly growing, but it might not always mean financially, you know, how do you define growth? You know, what is it you're looking to grow within the Dogwood label? 
I think when I say growth, I mean both, you know, financially, the company is growing financially every year, but also in terms of, you know, the companies sort of growing into new areas like production. So it's always been, you know, we went from UK distribution to international sales, from international sales to financing, from financing to production. And now we're doing international theatrical sales. So it's ever growing. It's, the, you know, lots going on, more people, more activities. And where we see an opportunity in the market, that's where we go. You know, like, for example, now we're going to be releasing uh, The Rescue in Holland and Scandinavia and Germany. So the company keeps growing. You know, we keep doing a lot more, a lot bigger stuff and diverse stuff as well. So when I say we're growing, I mean it in, in both senses, financially, but also in terms of structures, infrastructures and activities. And I'm aware the next question is sort of like asking you to pick uh, between a child, but I'm wondering if there are any like films or filmmakers that you've worked with while at Dugworth that you're like particularly proud of having worked on their films or released their films. Well, I'm particularly proud of having worked with Tim Hetherington and Restrepo. And obviously because he died in Libya, you know, it's, we just, you know, he's one of our most fond uh memories but also he was one of the nicest people we ever came across and I loved the, the film I love Restrepo it was the perfect balance between you know documentary filmmaking and verite which is my favorite documentaries and I love Blackfish because Blackfish really defined and and was a turning point for our company and what it meant I love also what it represents in that you know you can you can tell a sad story about some Something that is happening that is sad, but you can tell it from the optics of a thriller. So to make it more accessible, and that's what I love, you know, making films that are accessible that you don't even remember. You're actually watching a documentary. It mm. feels like a fiction film, a thriller, or a romantic comedy, or whatever. That's what really makes me tick, those kinds of films. I always say it's really easy to make a film. Anyone can make a film, but to make a film that it's made in a way where it's accessible to everyone, where people, most people forget they're watching a documentary, that's the challenge. That is, that's a gift. I have a lot of respect for filmmakers that can actually achieve that level of filmmaking. What do you think, because it certainly does feel like in the last 10 years, there has just been a massive proliferation in the kind of the types of documentary the ways they're made the amount of people that go to see them is that filmmaker driven money driven like what's behind that change do you think I guess a lot of a lot of it has to do with platforms like Netflix who obviously had a, a significant role in making documentary accessible and sexy and also, I think even COVID had a massive role because suddenly people were like, what are we going to watch? Okay, let me try something that normally I wouldn't have ever tried. And suddenly you're like, oh, pretty good. That's, I'm going to watch another another documentary. And mm -hmm. filmmaking has become better and better and better in, in documentary. And also, you know, filmmakers are challenging themselves to find incredible stories shot in incredible ways that has evolved into some of these documentaries. I said, As I said, feel more like fiction than than documentaries. So I think it has a lot to do with global platforms, but also an, an evolution in filmmaking, in documentary filmmaking, that it's just becoming better and better and better, you know, in terms of production values and story and characters. 
And then given that obviously in the traditional kind of theatrical release model, there was a tangible metric for success in box office returns. But now with streaming, you know, we don't always get to see those figures. How do you define success? You know, when a film, when a film of Dogworths is released, what to you says that you've done a good job at releasing that film? That's a good question. I mean, obviously, the one way to measure success is through box office and sales, you know, whether it's iTunes or whatever. Another way to measure success, I'd say, is through, you know, uh, social media success. Obviously, we track those numbers and we understand how well, how much attention we're getting from the audiences. And I guess another way is the words, you know. Uh, Sometimes we've worked on films that commercially haven't been that great, but they've achieved a lot of success from an awards perspective. And that's also, you know, success to us. So yeah, there are many ways to define success. How about personal success? Like, do you, how do you define that? Or, you know, when do you feel like you're doing a good job? I guess, you know, even to this day, I get surprised of the amazing reputation we have, especially in places like the USA. People want to work with us. People know us. We are sort of a reference in terms of someone people look up to. We realize that the market perception of a Dogwood film is like, okay, if Dogwood is handling it, it must be a good film. And that's a way to measure success, you know, professionally with the work we're doing is like, wow, really, it's incredible. Like to this day, I get surprised of (laughs) the incredible reputation we have, you know, for like all types of buyers, you know, the biggest to the smallest, to the filmmakers, to how they speak about us, how they recommend us. Like to me, that is success. I mean, it's such a small industry. You don't get away with murder because <laughs> people will know. So to to hear that, to understand the market perception is really gratifying. What do you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career so far? Trust your instincts. I say everything I've gone through and Dogwood's gone through all the sort of, you know, difficulties and, and wins and successes and failures and this and that. I often think or feel that following my instinct pays off and trusting one instinct pays off. So, you know, you have, at least in my my opinion, you must listen and you must learn always, uh, but you also must listen to yourself. So I give a lot of value to other people and to research, but ultimately with that information, it goes through my instinct filter (laughs) And then comes out what comes out. I'm not just going to do something because everyone else is doing it. I'm going to do it because it makes sense within myself. And that's the biggest learning curve is that doing that, you don't go as wrong. At least that's my experience. I'd love to know what still excites you about working in documentary. You know, what keeps you passionate about this job? I think what keeps me passionate is, is the brand we've built, the team we have, and the amazing stories that are in the making or are about to be made or someone is thinking about documentary or film. It's just an area, but each film, because documentary is a film, is a completely different story, is a completely different set of people. In fact, it's a completely different company. It's like a new adventure every time. And beyond that, just 
growing my company and you move to one level and you think you know it all, everything is under control. You move to the next level and suddenly you're like, I don't know anything. And it's so daunting and overwhelming and intimidating, but I love it because then you have to learn. And I love the feeling of not knowing and having to learn. I love that feeling. Mm. It's a challenge and I love it. So yeah. Mm. You embrace the not knowing. Yes, of course. How boring, <laughs> knowing it all. I hate people who think know it all. It's so, yeah, I'm, yeah, you got to be humble. And then finally, I'd love to know if there's a film that you've seen recently. It can be an old release, uh, short or feature from a woman director that you think is a bit of an undervalued gem that you'd like to recommend. Wow, you got me there. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I would probably recommend The Mole Agent which is a documentary that uh, we released and sold. And it was, I think, last year Oscar nominated or this year. I forgot. I think this last Jan. Mm -hmm. And it's the story about this old man who infiltrates in an old people's home to investigate a possible abuse of one of the, you know, old ladies who live there. Mm. And it's, insanely amazing and Maite Alaverdi who is a Chilean director is um, one of her biggest fans and I think she's she only makes gems basically that's what she does so I really really recommend it incredible thank you for sharing that and thank you so much for your time today um I've really enjoyed speaking with you I can't believe how quickly this hour has gone (laughs) yeah it's gone quick for me and it's been really lovely to meet you as well thank you thanks Nicole Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review, subscribe and spread the word. This is an entirely independent, self-funded, self-promoted podcast and your support is incredibly meaningful to me. I'll be back later this week with a little bonus minisode with a very special guest. But until then, take care.